Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Mark Gaffney. He published a book back in 2012 titled Black 9-11, Money, Motive, and Technology. And it's about the 9-11 event. He goes into great detail about a lot of the suspicious things that happened prior to September 11th, 2001. This is not Mark's first book or only book. He's also written Demona, The Third Temple, also a, a novel titled Never Summer, and Gnostic Secrets of the Nicenes and the Initiatory Teachings of the Last Supper in 2004. Also, the 9-11 Mystery Plane and the Vanishing of America, 2008. And then recently, Deep History and the Ages of Man, published 2020. But we're going to talk about this very interesting book. I'm familiar with some of the, the topics that he talks about, but he can talk about that more in detail. So the title of the book, again, is Black 9-11, Money, Motive, and Technology by Mark Gaffney. So, Mark Gaffney, welcome to the show. Very happy to be with you, R R William. Awesome. Well, great. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard your name or some of your research into 9-11, can you talk about your background and kind of what led you into the field of 9-11 research? I came late to it <clears throat> around 2006. And uh, somebody passed me a copy <clears throat> of David Ray Griffin's book, uh, The New Pearl Harbor, and uh, that kind of got me interested. And also, uh, I heard about a report of uh, that tritium had been detected at the World Trade Center site after the, uh, you know, the uh, September 11 attacks. And my first book was a study of the Israeli nuclear weapon program, uh, Demona, the Third Temple, and you know, that background keyed me in and, uh, you know, my, you know, uh, my ears perked up when I heard about tritium being detected at the World Trade Center uh, because uh, tritium does not occur naturally in nature. It's not a natural uh, isotope and uh, it is produced in nuclear reactors and in nuclear explosions. So, uh, and it's used in um, fusion weapons. So, uh uh, you know, that kind of got me going, too, although I did not discover any new evidence of that nukes might have been used uh, on 9-11. Uh, I'll just clue in your readers right now that I have since evolved in my thinking, and I now believe that probably was the case. We can talk about that later if you want. Um, but sure. anyway, um, let's let's start the discussion about uh, Black 9-11 right at the beginning. Okay. Uh, the first uh, impact of the World Trade Center one was on by flight 11 uh, and it hit the 95th and 96th floor of the North Tower. That just happened to be the offices of Marsh and McLennan, a firm who that ended up later on the Security and Exchange Commission's list of 38 suspicious companies that may have engaged in insider trading and other security uh uh, you know, criminal activity on 9-11. Um, that uh, Marshall McLennan was run by the son of Hank Greenberg. He was the head of AIG. And I mean, the, when you start, when you start looking at all of the interconnections here between uh, that, you know, that first impact, the site of Marshall McLennan, those offices, uh, and the Greenberg empire, there's so many connections. Uh, and, to me, what's really shocking is that the 9-11 Commission did not follow up on any of this. Right. They could have, they had all these suspicious connections and they just gave a pass on all of it. 
Yeah, what a surprise, right? Yeah, well, um, um, I mean, there was a lot of things that they, they talked about. Yeah. Go ahead, please continue. Okay, well, the first three or four chapters of my book, I review some of these connections. Um, one of the whistleblowers that has come forward on this was <clears throat> is a guy named Richard Grove, who worked for Silverstream Software. And what they did was um, internet uh, uh, connections. Uh, they, they were producing software to enhance and augment, you know, what was available at the time for these financial uh, outlets and insurance companies to uh, give them greater connectivity throughout their own uh, business world network. And he had a contract with um, Marshall McLennan starting from 2000 on, <clears throat> that's when they inked the deal to do this for Marshall McLennan. And they were going to be hyperlinked with AIG and, uh, and this whole uh, Greenberg empire. Now, and the, they were, they were had a, a date, they were supposed to be done with this project, which was July, 2001. And so they had a team of 40 people working like 24 seven to bring this into existence, to create this new software package for Martian McLennan. In the course of this work, uh, Grove came across financial fiscal irregularities with Martian McLennan. And when he brought this to the attention of his supervisor there at Martian McLennan, they said, uh, don't worry about it. You know, it's none of your business. Just, just do your job. Well, Grove uh, pursued this a couple of, you know, he he was a little bit too persistent and later was terminated by the company uh, before he could complete the, uh, the uh, project. However, he had meanwhile uh, become friends with some of the, some of the employees at Marshall McLennan. And when he talked with them in private, he learned that they too had very serious uh, concerns about fiscal irregularities and things, hanky panky things going on that shouldn't be happening. So these in these insiders at Marshall McLennan, um, who became Grove's friends, they set up a meeting for the morning of September the 11th, uh, 2001. They were going to confront management with these concerns. And uh, the managers were not going to be present. They were going to participate uh, through teleconference that morning. And uh, Grove in route to the meeting, uh, got delayed in traffic in New York City, you know, Manhattan traffic. And he did not arrive until after the impact of Flight of, of flight 11 into the Marshall McLennan offices. They lost over 300 staff people that morning killed, including all of the insiders that had been, uh, had been talking with Grove about these irregularities. <laughs> So, you know, they were all dead and the management never showed up for work. They were going to participate by teleconference. So, so it's almost like, right. It's almost like what happened at the Pentagon where the people, the whistleblowers are angry, but they get hit by the plane. Right. So the, the, uh, yes. Well, at the, accounting at the Pentagon, firm, we had, you mentioned, yeah. The, and not, it wasn't only the accounting firm. It was also the office of Naval intelligence, which is in that's had just moved in to that part of the building about a month before. And uh, it's, there's re reason to believe that the uh, Office of Naval Intelligence was engaged in a uh, uh, deep uh, 
uh, investigation of criminal activity by members of the Bush administration uh, involving money laundering and you know illegal deep uh, uh, covert operations that involved Russia. And this went back to the 90s, apparently, according to uh, the source that I uh, that I cover in one of the chapters, chapter five of the book, called collateral damage. Uh, now this is this is a whole nother story, but no, but it's important that because that's so all. There. Just to interrupt, sorry, Mark, but it's very important because no, that kind of black operation or the parapolitical stew that was occurring leading up to 9-11 is a very important background of the characters and the people that surrounded the 9-11 event. Right? I spent a whole chapter in the book uh, looking into this uh, uh, clandestine operation. Uh, this, this came to light in 2008. There was a researcher named E.P. Heidner. Uh, and I'm sure that's a pseudonym. We don't know who this guy really is, but he posted a 57-page uh, expose on the internet back in 2008 called collateral damage in which he he uh, puts forth this theory that there uh, that this that the accounting office and the office of naval operation office of naval uh, uh, oni was deliberately targeted that morning to take them out and the office of naval intelligence did lose 39 out of 40 people that morning including the entire chain of command. Wow. So whatever they were investigating came ground to a halt that morning because they their their staff was wiped out literally. It's incredible. And you know the the uh, we know that the day before 9/11 uh, uh, Donald Rumsfeld at a press conference admitted that the Pentagon could not account for 2.3 trillion dollars. Just an incredible uh, sum of money where to go. 2.3 trillion with a T, not billion, trillion. And uh, where it went, well, that's we still don't know because the next morning, uh, the, the play, the building got hit, of course. And later that afternoon, Donald Rumsfeld showed up on Capitol Hill to Hector, uh, Senator Levin, and others, you know, on Capitol Hill about about uh, you know where is the money we need to go after these terrorists. And, uh, you know, and the sure enough, the Congress coughed up basically unlimited monies for the Pentagon. Uh, and that and that money stream continued for many years. Right. And, and there was. The history, right. But it's very important what happened leading up to that. Right. You spend a lot of time in your book talking about some of the, the untoward uh, things that was going on in the financial world prior to 9-11. Correct. Richard Groves agrees with uh, Heidner that hundreds of billions of dollars were moving around that morning. And you know, this was probably the mother of all money laundering operations in, in, in involving securities fraud on a scale that we have never seen in, in, in our lifetimes, probably. And several major securities firms were uh, wiped, basically wiped out that morning. And Heidner theorizes that the, uh, this created the uh, a, uh, a a context for crime on a scale that, like I said, we haven't seen in our lifetimes. Yeah, we know that there were major puts put on. I think American Airlines and United. So somebody was tinkering. Tinker, you could see the spikes in trades on 
those airlines prior to the event. So there's all, clearly evidence of money's being moved around like if people knew what was going to happen, right? One of the contacts uh, that I had, a whistleblower, David Callahan, who had been uh, based in Baltimore, so he was familiar with A.B. Alex Brown uh, Bank, uh, where um, the third in command at the uh, CIA, uh, what's his name? At the time, at the 9-11 time? That's correct. Uh, was it Cohen? Insider's trade. I don't remember. Buzzy Cronegard. Sorry, Buzzy Cronegard. And I believe that Buzzy Cronegard was in the loop about what was coming down that morning. He was a number three man at the CIA. And I, I believe Tenet, CIA chief, was in the dark, totally. Hmm. Uh, but it's number three command. He was the liaison between CIA and Wall Street. Buzzy was in the, uh, in the loop because... His bank was one of the uh, had had purchased a number of the puts that morning. A. B. Brown. Now A. B. Brown had been uh, merged with um, uh, Bankers Trust in 1997. Bankers Trust, one of the most corrupt banks in uh, New York, in the United States, for that matter. And then they were, in fact, they they were basically shut down because of of their fraudulent activity. And then they were assimilated. They were bought up by Deutsche Bank uh, shortly before 9-11 and then a year or two before 9-11. So um, Buzzy Cronkard's old old colleague at A.B. Brown um, continued in the job, uh, took up Cronkard's uh, uh, old position. Uh, Mayo Shattuck III was his name. And his job was to um, handle these private accounts, you know, for these wealthy individuals, billionaires and so on. And these included uh, Nan Koshagi and the, uh, you know, the old famous infamous arms trafficker and uh, the Seagram's owner, Edgar Bronfman, people like this. Some very interesting characters with very interesting they, connections. Indeed, and uh, the day after 9-11, Mayo Shattuck, uh, without any explanation, resigned from uh, his job, left the bank. So very suspicious, actually, because his contract had, you know, a couple years left to go. So there's another lead that could have been investigated that was just left hanging. Right. And that wasn't the only one. I mean, there were a lot of corrupt banks and there's also a connection. Like you mentioned, Peter Dale Scott stated that that the uh, there were six out of seven of the deputy directors of the CIA all had Wall Street connections or really kind of white shoe Wall Street types. Well, yes, he has done um, um, has done some he did some really excellent uh, groundbreaking research on the the creation of the CIA and he showed that this thing was created on wall street. It was, it was set up by investment bankers for investment bankers. And I learned in my research that this included wheeling and dealing on the stock market. They were using, uh, this goes back probably to the sixties when the uh, CIA had an, uh, had a, 
a office where they were taking their uh, their own pension funds and they were gambling on Wall Street because they thought they could do a lot better than you know the Fortune 500, and it probably led them into a lot of illicit activity. And I can give you to take an obvious example: '73 when the CIA staged the coup down in Chile. I mean, think of the opportunities that they could have had for just windfall profits by shorting uh, Anaconda Copper, for example, the world's largest copper mine, and the, the, whose stock plummeted at the time of the uh, 73 coup where uh, Salvador Allende was overthrown. Right, on September 11th, right? That's the original September 11th. Yes, indeed. And that was the September 11th also. Right. So you can kind of see these overthrows where there's a financial element. Also, it's very important to look at that overthrow in 73 when Pinochet was brought into power because the psychological warfare that was involved in that was really powerful because most of the population didn't revolt. They actually only killed like 2,000 people. It's still terrible, but they, they, they implemented the shock doctrine. So like traumatization and uh, psychological, form of psychological warfare on the whole population of Chile to as an additional implementation to effectuate that regime change over Allende's uh, socialist uh, view that was really, uh, you know, expropriating private enterprise, including the copper mines, right? Yes, but uh, even um, uh, Allende, you know, had never even considered nationalizing the, uh, uh, well, what, what, what am I saying here? The, the uh, copper mines? Uh, or, uh, right. what, I, what I meant to say is that Pinochet left alone. He didn't touch it. So uh, the income stream from that mine was just so vital to the country. They didn't want, they didn't want to mess with it. Right, it was only so by yeah, go ahead, please continue. I want to go back to David Callahan, the uh, one of my sources and based in Baltimore. He pursued a, a Freedom of Information Act request uh, with uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Let's talk about their investigation of the insider trading. Uh, he he got a letter back from the SEC. He was looking for records, you know, <clears throat> about their investigation because remember. In the weeks after 9-11, this got a lot of news, uh, was a lot of coverage in the U.S. media, uh, the SEC's investigation, because everybody thought that the uh, investigation would lead back to bin Laden, that somehow bin Laden was involved in this book trading. Well, <laughs> guess what? The uh, paper trail led back to Wall Street, and uh, that's when the investigation disappeared. And just kind of disappeared from view in the news, and it just and we never heard anything more. Uh, the SEC sent Callahan a letter, and, and they told him that, well, unfortunately, the records from our investigation were destroyed. We don't have we don't have them anymore. However, in the years since the book was my book was released, uh, some other people have pursued continued pursuing these FOIAs. And uh, we know now that the SEC actually did have the records. And they had a complete paper trail that, of, the, of the put options trading before 9-11. And they know who these players were. And they simply buried the evidence. 
And all of those put options were exercised, meaning the cash payouts were made. Uh, and there's an estimated, uh, sorry, an estimated, that was my, uh, <laughs> uh, my screensaver, an estimated 35 million or more in profits of blood money was simply paid out and these guys walked away with the money. And this is shocking uh, reality yeah. that, you know, Americans but that's just eating. a drop of water in the ocean of fraud yeah. that took place because all of those defense, oh, yeah, that's small. defense companies, that's stock right. trebled and doubled. And Cheney even said before 9-11, he said, we're at risk of a terrible drop in defense industry. I think he said that in 2000. You can talk, it's around the PNAC time documents, but yeah. That's right. And uh, even the, I mean, the, uh, the Bush family uh, is implicated directly because one of his Bush's brothers, his brother Marvin, sat on the board of the company Stratasec, uh, which had uh, a security contract uh, with the World Trade Center. And uh, one of his other relatives, uh, Wirt Walker III, had actually been one of these uh, put options buyers. And uh, uh, Kevin Ryan uh, unraveled this thread. And uh, apparently Wirt Walker walked away with $40,000 from his put that morning. Later. He collected the $40,000. And the SEC concluded, well, obviously, Bush is not, uh, Walker is not a terrorist, so we're not going to look any deeper. So that's what happened. This is, this is, this is the reality. All right. So there's money involved. It wasn't just kind of an event. It, there, was, there was a financial facet to the whole thing, right? There was more evidence also of securities fraud uh, that came up late in 2001. There was a report in Reuters and CNN in December 2001, uh, that a number of the, uh, you, you know, the World Trade Center was just, to say it was destroyed is an understatement. I mean, everything, almost everything in the building was vaporized. There's almost nothing left. The, uh, the construction workers that did the cleanup, you know, they commented on this. There were many of the people who, who died that morning, they never found their bodies. They might have found uh, a body part you know, or a sliver, a bone. This is, this is, you know, this is what happened. And, you know, so, you know, plane impacts and jet fires, jet fuel fires cannot do this. And we can talk about the construction of the World Trade Center if you want, as we go on here. Please uh, do. Please those do. buildings were vastly overbuilt. But what I wanted just to mention that, that, Despite the incredible destruction, uh, a number of hard drives did survive and they were damaged. But uh, there was a company in Germany named Convar that had proprietary technology for recovering data from damaged hard drives. And they actually examined 39 of those drives and <clears throat> they found uh, evidence indicating that there might have been uh, uh untoward activity underway. Uh, you know, we had hints of this also, uh, uh, that this was going on from a number of sources, but they actually found evidence that large sums of money, as much as a hundred million, uh, was being rushed through these particular hard drives. 
So uh, that morning. So uh, and then uh, what happened? Uh, that company, Convar, got bought out, changed ownership. Somebody came in and bought that company up, and that was the last we heard about it. It was never mentioned again in the US. Wow. It's crazy. I mean, you don't Another you talk reason. you can talk about Kroll Associates and all these other kind of quasi Intel national security companies that were there on site. So yeah, it's uh that whole place was very strange. And Building Seven had all kinds of national security uh what is it kind of like FBI offices and things like that too, right? That's right. And uh, uh, CIA office in there. And also the uh, there was a, a major, I think, two floors or three floors was the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. And they had all the records of their ongoing investigations and the corporate fraud and criminal activity in there. Those were the three floors that were bur that burned <laughs> that burned out that morning. They burned out that and, morning uh, and then it dropped. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And all that evidence, all those files on all those corporations, you know, went up in smoke. And a number of a lot of those investigations were simply dropped after. So it was very convenient for corporate America, to say the least. <clears throat> and you talk about so, I found it interesting. Uh, yeah, you talk about Nugent Hand Bank. I did a really interesting interview about a guy who covered the Nugent Hand Bank. So if people want to check that out. It's in kind of my files, the author of the book is B-U-T-T, -T, that's his last name, but you can check that out. Let me see if I can remember what the title of it is. Send me a link to it. I'll look at it. I will. I'll put it in the yes. show notes right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, there were other, there were other uh, sources also. For example, take, for example, the FEMA photographer, <clears throat> Kurt Sonnenfeld. He actually descended that morning on the, on the day of 9-11 down into the ruins of Building 6. He was a photographer. And um, they found, they, they were able to get into the U.S. Customs vault in the basement through the wreckage. And they found the vault had been completely cleared out. It was empty. <coughs> right. Wasn't there supposedly a bunch uh, of gold in there? Well, it was gone. Yeah. Whatever was in there was gone. And his, his report in, uh, posted in 2009 pointed to foreknowledge uh, and is actually pretty strong uh, supporting evidence for what Heidner was proposing, you know, hmm. that and also uh, Richard Grove, that there was massive security fraud underway that morning. <laughs> right. And other criminal activity. And Sonnenfeld actually... Uh, he he was harassed after he went public in 2009 to the to the extent that he and his wife had to leave the country. He ended up down in uh, South America. I remember that story. That's I right. I remember that story. That's right. Here's the and for that thing matter, where interview. Sorry to interrupt, Mark, but here is the Merchants of Venice. Right. 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 It's all about. And he was actually found. This character was, was found. found uh, he found him in Idaho. Alive. So go ahead and just give us a, a thumbnail about this guy again. Well, it's a story about uh, Nugent Hand and that they really had no assets. They were just a huge money laundering operation, taking money from uh, the Golden Triangle and other sources and paying people out like a big Ponzi scheme. And then it all, uh, you know, it all unraveled in time. But 
Yeah, it's a pretty, it's and an interesting interview. He's written this book, yeah. What's up? Yeah, the, the owner of that bank uh, just dropped out of sight. The guy who founded it, right? Right. He found Michael Hand in uh, Idaho. So he he changed his name, went under a different name, and uh, he's passed away. But it was a very sketchy operation. People died. And uh, it had a lot of, like, deep state, politically uh, connected people involved in Nugent Hand. It was a huge scandal. So that was one of the one of the uh, platforms used by the CIA to finance covert operations. And uh, meanwhile, you know, and the very platform itself was a total scam. So <laughs> right. from the beginning. Yeah. Nugent Hand was a complete scam from the beginning. It wouldn't be the first time you talk about Wachovia Bank. You have all these banks that are just uh, dirty. Even AIG was dirty, wasn't right. it? I mean, I think uh, a lot of these, a lot of these guys are. Well, involved. there's a lot of unanswered questions about AIG. You know, they got the biggest bailout at that time in history, and uh, we still don't know, you know, <laughs> what went on. It's so corrupt. I mean, like 2008, the selective bailouts of certain companies, and then the ones that didn't get the bailouts died. Like my bank uh, croaked. It was. Uh, Washington Mutual. Bear Stearns didn't get money. So these oh, kind of select, these bailouts are means of consolidating power, yeah. Washington Mutual is gone then. Gone. No longer. I We had a, a, I asked because we had a local, an outlet here where I live, but I now that I think of it, I haven't seen it lately. <laughs> well, it's gone. It was gone since 2008. So, you know, no longer. It's no longer among the living of the banks. I mean, I think it just got absorbed, all that stuff, just like Bear Stearns, a lot of those guys. Um, why don't you talk? You talk about your book. Your intro is really about kind of controlled GPS guided planes. Can you talk about your inquiry into that okay. subject? Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Okay. In this book, I present Black 911, I present two separate lines of evidence for the maturation of remote control technology <clears throat> by 2001. Uh, one, of the, one line of evidence is presented by my co-author, uh, uh, Aidan Monahan, who uh, investigated that, the subject of GPS-guided air, aircraft autopilot systems. That was one source. <clears throat> Another source was a whistleblower by the name of Wayne Anderson, who was a pilot, and in chapter 10 of the book, I review, uh, I, I tell his story about the, uh, he, what he believes to be the technology at come of age, enabling um, uh, and the possibility to remotely lock out the, the flight crew. So they could actually take control of a plane locking out the pilot, uh, you know, and then uploading a different uh, flight plan into the flight control system <clears throat> and changing the, uh, the plane, you know, flying somewhere else. And he believes that this could have been done on 9-11. And I, this, is, this is what I came around to. I, I evolved in my thinking. And <clears throat> I believe this is the, probably the most likely explanation because 
the um, I don't believe the um, I mean, a, a plane swap is possible, but probably unlikely. Uh, there are there are issue. There are problems with that. Uh, that way of, of uh, there are a number of problems with doing a plane swap. Uh, we don't need to go into that, but I think that the remote control uh, alternative is more feasible. And um, certainly those 9-11 uh, hijackers, assuming they were on the planes, they did not have the cap capacity, they didn't have the capability to fly those planes, uh, 77, 767s, uh, into the uh, Twin Towers because they were going so fast that experienced pilots have uh, gone on record that it would take uh, a, a lot of preparations, including a, a number of um, test flights, to be able to hit those buildings at that speed because uh, it would have taken really expert uh, uh, flight skills to do that. And these like right on target, right on target, right, right on target in the center. Yeah, they were really, you know, rank amateurs at the best. Couldn't have done at it. at best. Yeah. So I mean, you. So I think you stated in you, know, you stated in your book like even one little variant of a turn five degrees, they would have missed it. So that uh, human right. error, That's any true. human error, would have lost it. Yeah. So it's much more likely that there was a transmitter. Planted in the buildings, in flight, you know, floor fifth, ninety fifth floor of of the North Tower, and in the South Tower, and in the Pentagon, and I believe that other that's the only way you can explain uh, how Flight seventy seven <clears throat> came in there and hit the what was undoubtedly the the target, uh, the uh, Office of Naval Intelligence and the Accounting Office. Because uh, if you look at the flight path of Flight seventy seven. That was took took some pretty good flying to make that uh, that's that 360 degree turn and come in there at that angle. It, the plane just missed the naval annex by a whisker. Uh, the much more easy, <clears throat> the much easier flight path was just to fly up the Potomac River. And if the you would imagine you would you would guess that these Muslim fanatics, if they would have been much more uh, interested, I believe, in hitting uh, the other side of the building facing the Potomac, which was a clear shot uh, where, you know, the Joint Chiefs of Staff were based and Rumsfeld's office. That would have been a much, much right. preferred target, I would think. You would think. So, You'd think they'd go yeah. for the high value target, right? Exactly. Uh, Mark, do you, can you take a few questions? We're at the 35 minute mark. Do you do? Uh, there's a couple questions sure, from the, on, so gameplay asked, did anyone lose their jobs or were fired as a result of the security failure of nine 11? I mean, I, I, excuse me for laughing, but nobody was fired after nine 11 people got promoted. So that was the pattern. And, you know, tenant was the head of the CIA. He got the, uh, the highest award given by the government. He should have been sacked. And uh, General Meyer, you know, acting uh, head of the Joint Chiefs, Chiefs. He, went before, he went before a Senate committee right after 9-11, could not answer the simplest questions about what happened that morning. They should have sacked him on the spot, and, you know, and keep bringing in somebody until you get some answers, right? Instead, they promoted him, made him, he made him the permanent uh, 
head of the Joint Chiefs. And so that's the pattern, yeah. Yeah, and you kind of talk about Flight 93, too, and uh, what happened with that event, too. You kind of have your own position, correct? Well, I investigated Flight 93, and, that, you know, that's the only chapter in the book that I would say is dated because uh, I can tell you uh, at the recent event, 9-11 event, this past September in Oakland, Ken Jenkins, a 9-11 researcher, presented a very cogent uh alternative analysis that I believe is probably correct. Uh, and he had some information, some evidence that I had not seen. So, um, for example, he had an animation that was based on the flight data recorder from Flight 93, which was recovered at the crash site. And it, it does appear that the hijackers were on that plane and the official story in this particular case might be correct that there was a revolt of the passengers and they tried to break into the cockpit where the hijackers were. And apparently that plane, according to the flight data recorder, it came straight down at, you know, and that, that kind of a trajectory can account for the, uh, the, the lack of, you know, visible debris on site there. We've had other crashes where the planes came straight down. It's a much different uh, pattern of debris than uh, most crashes, you know, where they're trying not to crash, you know. Right. And it's a whole different type of pattern. Of, uh, so, um, but, you know, this also supports the uh, remote control um, uh, theory because, for some reason, I would think my conclusion is that for some reason, they were not able to take control of that that fourth plane, Flight 93. And we saw the result. You had hijacker at the at the helm, flying all over the countryside, weaving around, not really knowing what they were doing. And uh, that is in sharp contrast to the other three flights that, you know, made beeline trajectories toward their target, which points to remote control. Right. And there's a lot more in this book. You go into the background of MENA. You talk about the NSDD 66 asset stripping of Russia. So there's a lot more of the, uh, you know, information that is a background of really kind of the financial school duggery that led up to 9-11. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap up the interview, Mark? No, no, no. I think we've covered quite a lot. Uh, we can there's, there's plenty more to talk about. We didn't get into the World Trade Center, uh, you know, uh, demolition, but that may can do that another time. We can do it another time. And what, uh, do you have a website or is there a way, social media of a way if people want to reach out to you? Um, well, I'll give you my email address if you want to post that. I don't mind if people email me. Sure, if you can give me your, I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, that's Mark, M-A-R-K. H, middle initial, as in Howard, last name Gaffney, G-A-F-F, as in Frank, N-E-Y, Mark H. Gaffney, one word, all one word, at uh, uh, earthlink.net. You've had that one, that email address for a long time, I can tell you that. <laughs> That's from the early internet uh, websites. You know? Yeah, don't blame you. Uh, 
Great. And I mean, really interesting. There's a lot more information in this book. People go out and check it out. Again, the title of the book is Black 9-11, Money, Motive, and Technology by Mark Gaffney. Originally published 2012 with the second edition in 2016. And that's the uh, cover of the 2016 edition that you see if you're watching this on YouTube. So Mark Gaffney, thanks so much for your time. Terrific interview, uh, William. Right, Thank you. All right. Take care. Stay there. Stay there. <laughs>